You see the waste burning there. You take a walk around, especially in the early morning, uh, more in the winter time, and every other street corner, there's a little pile of trash that's burning on the street corner. This is the IASS podcast with Anja Krieger. I'm here at COP23, the climate conference in Bonn, together with Charlotte Unger, who's a researcher at our institute. Hi, Charlotte. Hello. And Mark Lawrence, who's the scientific director of our institute. Hi, Mark. Hello, Anja. Charlotte and Mark, you just came back from a day of working with the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, right? Could you tell me about that? What is this coalition about? It's an initiative that was formed in 2012, and then it was eight countries coming together. Hillary Clinton had a good role in, in pushing this initiative. By now, we have not only eight, but we have over a hundred members in this initiative. They came together to not only focusing on the classic climate gas, which is carbon dioxide, which everybody focuses on, but also to include the so-called short-lived climate forces into this whole greenhouse gas reduction issue. So short-lived climate forces are those gases that are non-CO2 that stay for a short while only in our atmosphere, but equally have very large effect on the atmosphere, a large warming effect also. So they're equally important. So yesterday we came together and it was a very important event because many of the very high level policymakers and very high level politicians participated. Many countries sent their ministers, their environmental and even some of the agriculture ministers to participate. And yesterday especially to talk about two topics, the coalition sets two topics every year to main focuses and this year we talked about agriculture and municipal waste for example waste management landfills so these were the focuses i think very interesting because of course i think 50 percent of our global emissions come from agriculture and agriculture has this two phases that on the one hand is responsible for emitting and on the other hand it is also very strongly affected by climate change. Um, it was interesting also that the coalition focused on these two topics because I have had the feeling that these topics are a little underrepresented. So I am happy that we could focus on this topic yesterday. Mm -hmm. Mark, you're an atmospheric scientist. How do short-lived climate pollutants come into play when it comes to agriculture? Could you explain this? Well, first off, I like to call them short-lived climate forcing pollutants, the SLCPs. Mm -hmm. uh, we add the forcing in there to really emphasize that they're pollutants that are responsible for forcing the climate and that they're short-lived, not that they're climate pollutants. To okay. distinguish uh -huh. these two aspects, because the pollutant aspect means that they're important for health and they're important for agriculture. One way that they come into play with agriculture is that ozone in particular and some of the other pollutants have a strong impact on agriculture. Ozone is responsible for crop yield losses that are up to 50% in some regions, such as the Mediterranean. 
What kind of losses? Losses of crop yields, so reductions of crop mm -hmm. yields. Because ozone attacks the leaves, uh, causes the leaves to be shriveled or to have brown spots on them so that they're not as useful for, uh, for the agricultural yields so that you don't get as much crops out of them. Agriculture also has an interplay then with these SLCPs because the agriculture is responsible for a lot of the emissions, in particular for methane emissions, as well as for the emissions of, of what we call volatile organic compounds. These are compounds that contain carbon in them, that then when they react with nitrogen oxides, like the ones that come from cars, for instance from diesel vehicles, they create ozone in turn. And uh, so these SLCPs have a two-way interaction with agriculture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the other field you mentioned and discussed yesterday was municipal waste. How can I imagine uh, that to produce these short-lived climate-forcing pollutants? Well, it depends on how the municipal waste is treated. So if municipal waste is burned, like it's done in the Kathmandu Valley where they have hardly any waste treatment programs, then it creates all sorts of stuff out of it. And uh, some of that stuff will create things in turn like methane and ozone and especially soot, which contains black carbon that absorbs sunlight and also other kinds of particles that reflect sunlight and that influence the climate in cooling fashion, but a regionally cooling fashion that can differ from, the, from the, the warming that happens in other regions. And so it creates all these pollutants that can in turn affect the climate and of course have substantial effects on health. Um, if the waste is treated by putting it in landfills, then the microbes in the landfills that break down a great deal of the waste tend to tr produce methane. And one of the major sources of methane is then through landfills. Mm -hmm. You've been to Kathmandu yourself, right? Many times, yes. And, and um, do you see the effects there? Of, of the these pollution, of, the of pollution? course, yes. You take a walk around in the morning, and first off, you see you see the waste burning there. You take a walk around, especially in the early morning, uh, more in the winter time, and every other street corner, there's a little pile of trash that's burning on the street corner. And the pollution effects are horrifying. The pollution there, on average over the year, is comparable to the pollution on average over the year in Beijing. Beijing gets worse episodes and it gets cleaner episodes. And in Kathmandu it stays bad most of the time. To give an idea of that, in, in a place like Berlin, for a couple of days of the year we might go over the World Health Organization limits for particulate matter, air pollution. In Kathmandu, for a couple of days of the year they might go under the limits. The rest of the day they're over it. it the pollution is that bad all the time. So we're talking about places far away. Do we still also have a, a, an issue with these short-lived climate-forcing pollutants here in Europe? Yes, Or even we do. in Germany? Yes, uh -huh. we do, indeed. What, what and is in the fact, issue? The, well, the, the issue is that uh, even though the air pollution in cities in Europe, for instance, compared to the London smog or the London fog, what they called it, um, the, the terrible smoke that they had in the 1950s, Compared to that, we've improved vastly in Europe, across Europe. But we still have air pollution issues. And in fact, air pollution in Europe is responsible for about half a year of loss of life expectancy for people. So if you consider, that's not huge, but it's not small. And in some regions where the pollution is particularly bad, it can be up to a year or even two years of loss of life expectancy just due to the air pollution. 
and in turn, of course, then the air pollution here also has impacts on climate, especially the methane that comes from agriculture. So just to give an idea that, yes, air pollution is still a problem here. It's not the number one problem in Europe, but it is still a significant problem. If we zoom out to the global picture again, how would it improve the climate issue? Or what could we do in terms of climate protection if we tackled these short-lived climate forcing pollutants? Well, the SLCPs are responsible for as much or probably even somewhat more warming than carbon dioxide is right now. And at the same time, they're responsible for a cooling that's very uncertain because it's very difficult still for us to really scientifically understand how particles especially interact with clouds and cool the climate, but a cooling that's about the same magnitude in the other direction. And sometimes people say, well, those cancel each other out and that the cooling SLCPs masks the warming from the warming pollutants. But of course, these are in different regions. And so you'll have cooling from sulfur dioxide creating particles of sulfate that will be predominantly over China, over Eastern Asia, and warming from soot that's predominantly over Southern Asia. So in any case, these together are responsible for climate forcing that's currently comparable to the climate forcing from carbon dioxide. And if we're talking about staying within tight limits, where we're at one degree already and we want to try to keep global warming to well below two degrees, aiming for one and a half degrees, then the SLCPs are very significant. If we go out down the road towards three, four, five degrees, then carbon dioxide takes over and dominates as the issue. Mm -hmm. Because it stays longer in the atmosphere, or it's harder to get out well, in natural processes? No, it dominates because when we get up to uh, three, four, or five degrees, then the vast majority of the warming is from carbon dioxide. So the, the, the SLCPs, the, the pollutants, have largely reached the amount of warming that they're going to have. And while some regions, there's a, t there's a limit in tolerance to air pollution that we don't have as a limit in tolerance to carbon dioxide. You don't notice how much carbon dioxide's in the air, do you? No. You don't feel it. No. But I, you go to somewhere like Kathmandu, it. or you go to somewhere like Beijing, and you feel it, you smell it, you can even taste the pollution there. So the, po the populations want to reduce pollution more so for their own sense of livelihood than they care to reduce carbon dioxide. So we always will likely keep the amount of contribution of pollutants to climate forcing at a relatively capped level. But carbon dioxide, like you say, it does stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. It's not short-lived, rather it stays in the atmosphere for hundreds of years, and it builds up and builds up and builds up. And so if we keep emitting, then we'll build up to levels where carbon dioxide will be 80% of the climate forcing and not 50% of the climate forcing. And so it becomes or 90% even maybe in the future. So it becomes really the dominant issue if it builds up to those levels. So it's important to focus on both. You can't use focusing on the SLCPs is an excuse for waiting to work on carbon dioxide, but you also can't say, well, we're only going to focus on carbon dioxide and forget about the SLCPs or we'll sail right past two degrees. Right. Charlotte, in the Climate and Clean Air Coalition, you discuss what can be done about these short-lived climate-forcing pollutants, right? So what are you discussing? How are the different people there trying to tackle this issue? I think they basically work on two different levels. They work on the one hand, they have a more political work, which is doing 
somehow getting countries and groups together to do political work, such as we had just yesterday, which was also in groups and countries committing to a, a communique where you, you have certain commitments where countries commit and, and say, yeah, we want to reduce our methane emissions and we want to reduce our emissions from agriculture and they commit to something somehow. But on the other hand, they have also the very on-the-ground work and they're doing, for example, the, the Kathmandu Valley is a good example. ISS did on-the-ground work projects that change the conditions, the local conditions. Yeah. Mark, you initiated this project in the Kathmandu Valley together with Maheshwar Rupaketi. Um, can you tell us more about it? How did you start tackling the issue there? Yeah, sure. That was actually had an interesting start to it. Um, I was at a meeting in Kathmandu years ago for what was sort of one of the predecessors of the Climate and Clean Air Coalition. It was a UNEP project called the, the, uh, the Atmospheric Brown Clouds Project. And it was focused much more on the science side with a foot in the politics. And then the Climate and Clean Air Coalition came about when we said, well, actually, we understand enough of the science to get started now. We don't have understand enough to get finished, but we understand enough to get started. So let's get going. And it's a much more politically oriented project that's based in the science. So I was there for this meeting of the uh, Atmospheric Cloud Brown Clouds Project and uh, got sick from the air pollution, got really sick, and came back to Germany and, and went to my doctor, and, and it took about six weeks to get over the horrible cough that I had there, and uh, had the experience while I was there of talking to a shopkeeper who told me, oh yeah, yeah, we all cough like that, up and down the row, peek my head out and look down the row and see how many shops there are, and realize, my goodness gracious. And so I thought, well, it'd be awfully, an appropriate project for the IASS to try to get our hands dirty on the ground work. And I uh, got my colleague Maheswar Rupiketi, who had been at UNEP before, on board to lead this project. And what we found out very quickly was that we wanted to work on helping come up with policies for and, pro and plans for reducing air pollution. There was no idea of what the air pollution was. So first thing we had to do was out get the science spun up. So together with our collaborators at ECMOND, an institute that's based in Kathmandu, and with several others, we uh, set up a field campaign to measure the pollution that was there. And we had actually 20 other institutes jump on board and send 40 scientists to spend six months out in the field with us doing measurements. And now we have enough information to really characterize and say during the winter time, the brick kilns are the main source of pollution. Throughout the rest of the year, diesel vehicles seem to be the main source of pollution. But neither of those is dominant. There are sources at the 30-40% level. So there's several other sources like waste burning and agricultural burning, agricultural waste burning and also um, that are significant sources of pollution. And so now we can really work together with the governments on strategies for reducing the worst parts of the pollution. Mm -hmm. So what are the next steps you will take with this project? So the next steps for us, uh, we're going to focus especially on the issues around the diesel. Our colleagues at ECMOD have been working together with, uh, with us as well, but especially they've been leading the effort with the CCAC on the brick kilns. 
and they're also uh, sort of dominant on the topic of agriculture. It fits very much to the types of works that they, uh, the type of work that they generally do, and so they've already seen to it that funding has come into the valley to rebuild all of the brick kilns after the earthquake with a better technology. Still not the best technology, but a better technology. So we'll be working especially on trying to understand what the concrete impacts of different types of diesel vehicles are. Uh, we're working on an emissions inventory right now that helps us a lot to get a better handle on that. And then what kinds of, of sensible policies could be put in place. The first policy that was put in place was to ban all vehicles older than 20 years from public service, which sounds like a great plan, except that uh, as soon as they were banned from public service, they were bought up and used in private service. So it's a good plan, and on the ground it didn't quite work like it was planned to work. And so this is the kind of thing that we want to work together with the government to try to understand how can they go steps by step by step to put measures in place that will help to reduce the air pollution there. Thank you, Mark, for sharing these experiences. And thank you, Charlotte, for joining us. This was the podcast of the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies. Stay tuned for more episodes. Bye-bye.